Hey guys, I'm Norb. And I'm Mike. And we're the Watchmen. We are the men who watch. If it's on a screen, we're watching it and talking about it with you guys. So recently, we both enjoyed watching a show on Netflix called The Movies That Made Us. The Movies That Made Us, this is Netflix much-watch TV, guys. If you guys like behind-the-scenes documentaries, this is, like, by far some of the best uh, documentary behind-the-scenes stuff you could possibly ask for. It's awesome. I love behind-the-scenes documentaries. That's one reason I like to buy physical media, because it always has a ton of behind-the-scenes documentaries. And I'll get right into this by saying, here's my biggest problem with behind-the-scenes documentaries that are made recently— is a typical interview with an actor goes like this. So, what did you think of working on the film with the directors? And the actor says, Oh, the directors were great. Everybody was so great. They were so nice and and accommodating. It was just a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I'm thinking, there is way more to this than that. Yeah, and that's what's great about these is, one, they tell it in a really rapid, fast-paced style with a lot of music, a lot of humor, And so it's very entertaining, period. But they get into the real dirt, the real stuff behind the curtain that uh, you didn't know. And there was several things that we learned on uh, on this show. And so they talk about four different movies that happen to be some of our favorite movies of all time. Die Hard, Home Alone, Dirty Dancing, and Who You Gonna Call? Ghostbusters! Ghostbusters! <laughs> yep. So, let's just get right into it. Mike, which which of the four films you want to start off first with? Uh, let's see. I'm willing to talk about uh, Home Alone. All right, let's do so, it. So, Home Alone was really cool. The director, Chris Columbus, is the main interview that anchors the show. And I, I, I'll also get into that. These shows have a terrific narrator. I don't actually don't know who the guy is. But I don't know he's either. got this style about him that's really fun and... And and you just laugh at his voice, just the way he kind of he has kind of a oh, how would you say it? It's a it's a it's a not condescending, but just kind it's, of it's it's slightly cynical and cynical. mocking. Cynical but it's, is it's a good lightweight word. at the same time. Yeah, so it's always whenever he says something, you're always expecting him to come up with some sarcastic punchline with it, and that's the way they edit the shows too. So everything is like you never know when a little twist of what they're saying is going to be turned into something totally unexpected. I think that the writers of the show are really in tune with, with kids and pop culture because my son, a lot of times, he walks around the house and you'll say something and he'll just go, oof. And uh, there was a part in one of these documentaries where one of the people interviewed said something and the narrator goes, oof. And I thought, <laughs> wow, they are they are really in touch here with even the way kids talk. So yeah. getting back to Home Alone... Uh, Chris Columbus, he is so interesting to listen to, and he has such a genuine friendliness to him. And I think to myself, I'd love to work with that guy. And and then, of course, he's willing to talk about details and depth of things that happened back then that I don't think people would talk about today. Again, coming back to my opinion of people today, they're afraid to say about the problems that might have happened on set, so they just say everything was great. But Chris Columbus, he talked about difficulties working with John Hughes, the writer, and difficulties working with the studio to get the film film financed, come up with a budget that worked. The the details are terrific. And, you know, just getting back again to my, my feeling about it's not so much negatives. It's that life is hard. Life is challenging. It's hard to get along with people sometimes, especially when you're in a pressure cooker of making a movie. And I want to hear about the problems that people had 
and how they solve them. That's what's most important is how did they solve them? Because that's what inspires me in my own life is learning how people work through challenges and figure it out. Right. And I think what was interesting right off the bat is when, when they start to reveal things behind the curtain, the first thing I got from, from the show is that you realize we used to think that Hollywood movies, everything is just professional and it's all planned out. Everybody gets along and everything just runs like smooth, like clockwork. And what we found is with all four of these movies, they all had major, yeah. major problems. Things and you would have never thought were a problem. Yeah, and it, it's almost a miracle that these movies even got made. And uh, you know, and you mentioned with Home Alone, one of the biggest things in there that I believe the original production uh, film distribution company was Columbia, right? Wasn't it Columbia? I think it was Warner Brothers. Oh, oh Warner Brothers. Sorry, Warner Brothers. Yeah. Warner Brothers. So Warner Brothers was financing it originally, and then uh, they went over the budget they'd agreed upon by like four million dollars or no, something like that. It was just like a million that. over. It was just a million over. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well. So that I think it was like 1.7 million or something like that. But they basically said, nope, we're pulling the plug. And what they were able to do is they got 20th Century Fox to step in. And literally as they were, they got the switch over so quick that peop, the, the production you know, uh, designer, he was going around telling everybody, sorry guys, movie's over, you got no job here anymore. And the other guy who made this deal happen was literally right behind him telling everybody in their offices, no, 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 stay where you are, we're Keep still working. good. And so it's like literally they're, they're, he's chasing after this person, trying to tell everybody not to leave, and it's all happening like in real time. And so that by itself is just crazy, how that movie almost disappeared and then came back to life in like a matter of minutes. What's really neat about it too is this was filmed, uh, most of the movie was filmed at a high school in Chicago. And a shout out to my nephew, Michael. He actually goes to this high school right now. So at the time, apparently the high school, uh, times were tough and the high school was was abandoned. Shut down. Shut down. But then... Apparently, years later, it was resurrected, and now that's where Michael goes to high school. So I actually watched this again with him, and I was asking him all kinds of questions about, you know, now, do you remember that hallway, and what, you know, do you remember that pool? And he was like, yeah, I do. I, I swam in that pool, and and uh, that was that was really neat. What's pretty amazing about that is, yeah, it was a, a real high school shut down at the time, but they shot some of, I think, Ferris Bueller was shot there. Uh, so John Hughes was familiar with that. And I guess he, he liked the idea of not shooting in the studio system. He didn't want to be part of Hollywood, so he wanted to stay away from that. And being in Chicago allowed them to stay away from that whole environment, keep the studio at arm's length. And this, yeah, the, they turned the entire campus into... A studio, sound stages, production offices, and eventually the uh, the editing rooms as well. So that's pretty amazing. I never would have thought they did all this in a high school. It's shocking. One great thing I will say about the way these documentaries are put together is, I think I said this earlier, is I'm not a big fan of hyper-editing, fast-paced editing, but it is done so well that I like it. And they do things that are so unconventional in the way when you shoot an interview with someone, a lot of times you'll ask them questions, they'll have answers, but they'll use parts of people's interview where they might be just doing this. And that could be because they're <laughs> listening to a question, but of course they twist it and make it look like they were reacting to something someone else said. And it, it makes it funny. And they'll even, like in the Die Hard one, the, the stunt guy, when they introduce him, he goes, Hello. I think they did that for a sound test. And so every time they reference the stunts, they go back to him, hello, and they keep coming back to it. And it just, it's like they've manufactured humor out of something that was never meant to be funny. 
Well, and they also would take uh, quotes from the movies themselves. So they might say there's a problem, and then somebody in the character from a famous dialogue scene would say something that echoes this problem. And, and they would just keep cutting back and forth from interview to interview to interview to movie clip, movie clip, and back to a, a reused quote, like you said. And so that style just really works. to It never gets slow. It's just you have to, like, hang on and just enjoy the ride because it, it just goes at a fast clip. Well, the so. way I convinced you to, to watch this, I was telling you about it. And you told me, you said, yeah, that's the way a lot of YouTube videos videos are, are cut these days. Yeah, well, I think everything, you know, these days now, hypercutting is pretty pretty fashionable, but they did it in a way where you still, you know, they kept it where it wasn't annoying, but it was just a really great way of telling the story. One of the things that, that jumped out as another kind of surprise in the behind the scenes was they were talking about John Candy, and obviously John Candy uh, was a big part of the John Hughes uh, film world then, and, and when he showed up to the set, it was like a big thing that John, oh, John Candy's here, John Candy here, was here, and, and that was one of the few days that John Hughes actually came to the set to watch because his buddy was there. And what's funny is that he did this as a, as a favor, right? So he spent like a 23-hour shoot day working on this film, but he took like minimum pay for his cameo in this. And apparently the pizza delivery guy who who comes to the, to the house, he made more money than John Candy for his work on Home Alone. It just blows my mind. John Candy had a great little part in there, yet he made less money than the, the pizza delivery boy extra. I thought that was hilarious, but... Kind of helps when you're friends with the director, I guess. Speaking of money, in the Dirty Dancing documentary, they they asked a number of the people involved about the points on the back end, and that basically is a is how who gets what cut of the profits. And clearly, there were people that were not happy that they felt they got gypped, and there were some comments made at other people about that they felt they were greedy. And, of course, they go back to the to the lady they say that to, and she says, I just cared about the movie. I, what meant <laughs> yeah. to me is this movie is out there. And, of course, the other guy says, yeah, she cared about the money. And <laughs> I, I believe that stuff because money can make people do things that's not so nice. Well, what's, what's cool about that is that you'd never hear that in behind the scenes. You'd never hear people talking about the points of profit and things like that. And they're here, they are talking about it and saying, this person took more and I made less. And that's what's great about this story is that they're being very open about it. And uh, it's not glossed over just to make the movie look cool. This is all like the dirt you want to hear about. So, um, yeah. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if you had other stories about Home Alone before you go to our next movie. But I was going to say that you know, at the end, they talked about how this <clears> movie was really a a, a considered a low-budget movie. It was when you think about the scale of it. But what made it, kind of go over the top was the fact that at one point the music wasn't working and, and I think Chris Columbus jokingly said hey you know what would be great is to get John Williams to score this and everybody just thought he was you know, just just kidding around and they sent him a cut he liked it and he signed up and you know and I think his music is what makes that movie go from small indie you know low budget show to you know grand Hollywood epic movie which eventually it became a movie that that better did, outdid Star Wars and E.T., which I couldn't believe it at the time it was happening, but there it was, and, and John Williams scored all three of those movies. So pretty cool how that actually, sometimes little wishes and dreams actually do come true when, it, when you just ask somebody to give it a shot. So in the pretty interest awesome. of keeping our show to a good quality time limit, I think we, we have time to probably, if you want to specifically get into one more movie, that's cool. I was obviously trying to cover a number of movies and just talking about the editing style, but why don't you pick, you know, I picked Home Alone, so why, of the last three, why don't you pick one? And we could focus on that. 
Okay, well, and maybe we'll just bounce bounce around between the two. But you know, Ghostbusters and Die Hard, obviously, those two are special to to you and me. So we'll we'll spend a little bit of equal time on both of those and just talk about some of the things that, that really jumped out. But I, I'd say probably I'd start out with Die Hard. Uh, that the what the first thing that I couldn't believe they revealed when talking about that film was the fact that. That movie, when they started shooting, they had so many problems with the script. And the script you know, came from a book uh, that was meant to be uh, for uh, Frank Sinatra. It was this fight, isn't it? Supposed to be Frank Sinatra was supposed to play the role of of the of the main character in this movie, but obviously things changed. They changed it to uh, to to what it became titled as Die Hard, and they started changing the story. But because they were making so many last minute changes, they only had thirty five pages written, which normally a two hour movie would be like one hundred twenty. Uh, pages. He had 35 pages, and they already started shooting the movie. So they didn't even have the movie a qu- maybe a quarter done before in the script before they started shooting. I was like, who shoots a movie without a completed script? And they they did. They just started shooting because they had to get it done. And that just is like, who would who'd have thought that a movie like Die Hard, one of our favorite blockbusters of all time, didn't even have a completed script? That 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 by alone it just blew my mind. And they get into talking about how. Bruce Willis's people told the writer, no more changes. Bruce doesn't want any more changes. And then the writer on set is talking with Bruce, and Bruce is saying, yeah, do you think you could write a few more jokes? And he says, well, but your people told me no more changes. And he's like, no, no, I, let's, let's keep doing stuff. And you realize not everybody's all talking together. Yeah. So I, I thought what was interesting, too, is they were talking about just, again, the production challenges. They, because they were shooting in the Fox Fox building, which was still being constructed at the time, and and it was supposed to be a 20th century Fox movie. But even though they were shooting in their own still property, several and all floors that, under construction, several floors under construction. But the it was still in a place where you know you had residences not too far away from where they were, and people were complaining about the lights and the noise and the gunfire. But the big one was the fact that they wanted to do that helicopter scene where the where the, the helicopters come in and you know flying down the streets and uh, start shooting up the top of the roof and all that. Well. Because of the restrictions they put on it, they only were given two hours to shoot that entire helicopter sequence. And I guess they were actually able to pull it off in a half an hour. One of the biggest sequences, but they planned it so far knowing they only had a two-hour window. They had it all set to where they could get it almost all in like one take. And it's amazing when you think about that sequence being so such a big part of that show. That they (laughs) had such restrictions to work off of because of angry neighbors. But... Amazing that, that they had to deal with that kind of stuff on a movie that big. Well, moving on to Ghostbusters, you know, Ghostbusters, watching how they made that movie reminds me of, I think, the way it works in films today is it's hard to get everybody on board with a, a story or an idea because it's a huge investment risk. There are all kinds of things involved. People aren't sure if an actor is going to agree. And you realize it's easy to look back in Ghostbusters and said, "Oh yeah, they, it was you know, that movie was so great. They were making magic from day one, and they all knew it. They didn't. They had so many worries, problems, challenges, fears, concerns. There were my favorite story was how they were talking about. They weren't even sure Bill Murray was going to show up on set. <laughs> yeah, because Bill Murray's kind of a tricky guy to." To, to talk with and get to commit, and the day they're shooting, they're like, is Bill going to come? Is Bill going to come? Dan said, Dan Aykroyd said he would be there, but, but nobody knew here. any confirmation. And then he just then, showed up. Eight o'clock in the morning of the day of shooting, he just shows up. Okay, let's go. can only <laughs> so imagine the stress. Yeah. I thought one of the more interesting side stories that you know nobody really ever knew about was the fact that the title Ghostbusters 
was actually owned by an animation company for a little show they had going on, and they refused to give up the name. Yeah, and it so was going to be called Ghostbreakers. Ghostbreakers. <laughs> you hear that now, it's like, oh my gosh, what a horrible title. But for a while, they started the show because they weren't sure if they were going to get the, the clearance. They actually shot the movie in two versions. They would, every time they mentioned or had a, something that referred to Ghostbusters, they'd do it again and go by Ghostbreakers. And for after a while, they just said, this is ridiculous. We're just going to stick with Ghostbusters and we'll see what happens. But the fact, and eventually because Universal was, became the, the film distributor and they owned that animation company, they were able to get the, the name from it. But man, there's just the idea that they didn't even have the rights to the name and they had to shoot two different versions. It's just crazy. Well, actually, the story was an executive that they'd been working with that he'd been trying to negotiate for the rights to that name. He got fired by the studio. Yeah. But then he got hired by the studio that owned the rights to that name. So yeah. they got lucky. <laughs> yeah. Right. It got lucky. The, the, yeah, it, it just all worked out. Sometimes it, it is true. Sometimes you're just, you're just lucky instead of, you know, better to be lucky than good, as they say. Mm. So. Well, I'd say at this point, it's time for the surprise. And That's uh, right. the surprise is actually related to the last movie we were talking about. In okay. 2014, they released a special limited collector's edition of Ghostbusters 1 and 2 on physical media, so I had to pick it up. And one of the things that came along in this package was <laughs> oh, yeah. Slimer and the ghost logo all done in a nice 3D, uh, I would say, uh, like a porcelain mold. So I uh, got this in the box, and I got it out to share with you. What do you think of this, Norm? Wish you had this? That's pretty awesome. Well, <laughs> I'm not I know the you do. I know like you, you wish are. you had this. You collect everything, and I, I just I don't have any more room for more junk. So, you know, you can have it. And uh, I don't have any room cool, either. But... <laughs> that's awesome, though. And that was the surprise for today's show. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode where we talked about the movies that made us. If you guys have any ideas for a future uh, show or movie that you'd like us to talk about, just put it in the comments. I'm Norb. And I'm Mike. And we're The Watchmen. The Men Who Watch. See you next time. Thanks for watching The Watchmen. Please click on here to watch other episodes and be sure to hit that like button too. And please subscribe and hit that notification bell. That way you'll always be alerted to any future episodes. It really helps us out and we appreciate it. We'll see you next time. And remember, We'll be watching.